Welcome. I'm Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. So I don't have a whole lot of non-case-related things to say, except I have some weird sinus thing going on. So if it sounds like I'm talking through my nose, that's why, and I apologize. So let me introduce you to Jamie Laity. She is a 32-year-old medical sales rep. She is 5'4", 130 pounds. She has shiny black hair, fresh face, and eager smile. It is St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 2010. Jamie is running errands in Chandler, Arizona, which is about 25 miles east of downtown Phoenix. She deposits some checks at Wells Fargo drive-thru. She gets an oil change. She goes to Staples, gets some office supplies. Pretty standard stuff. At 6.30 p.m., she talks to a roofer who has done some work on her house. Turns out he is going to be the last person to speak to her. Even though Jamie is friendly, she is also very, very private. And because she's very private, it isn't until two and a half months later that anyone realizes that she's vanished. This is also because slowly over a two-year period, she had been fading from her friends' lives. Jamie was born in October of 1977. She was the younger of two girls, born to Jimmy and Bunny Laity. They were immigrants from Thailand who had settled in California. Her older sister, Pepper, went to medical school and did her residency in neurology. So very smart, very successful. Jamie is feeling the pressure that she also needs to succeed. 1995, she goes to the University of Michigan. In her senior year, she and six other girls rent this house at 516 Walnut in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And they call themselves the 516 girls. Now, these girls are very close, and they remain very close after graduation. They email, they make phone calls. When one of them gets married, the others are bridesmaids. When children start being born, they become godmothers. Jamie was a very generous godmother. Jamie's relationship is good with the 516 girls, but it's very different with her family. She has stopped talking to her parents and her sister. From what I understand is because the parents really wanted Jamie to follow in Pepper's footsteps and go to graduate school. But Jamie is her own person and she isn't interested in competing with her sister. So she moves to Arizona and she becomes a salesperson of a medical equipment company. And she did very well, making well over $100,000. Though in 2004, a few days before she turns 27, she buys a house of her own. Even though she doesn't have a lot to do with her family, she does remain very loyal to the University of Michigan. And she joins a local alumni association. And this association meets regularly for business, but they also had get-togethers every Saturday at a nearby bar to watch Wolverine football, which Jamie was very into. Now, I got a lot of my information from a couple of places. One was from a book called The Masters of True Crime, it's the chapter The Trophy Wife by Camille Kimball. And then also from a December 2012 episode of 48 Hours called The Stranger Beside Me. In that episode of 48 Hours, they talk to some of the 516 girls. And they talk about how Jamie was very into University of Michigan football and how she didn't miss a game and how that was such a big part of their lives when they were in college. This alumni association is kind of a continuation of that enthusiasm for Jamie. So Jamie has these things going on in her life, but she is a little bit lonely. In 2006, at this alumni association, she meets Brian Stewart. 
he is a well-muscled, blue-eyed fitness instructor. And even though Jamie is still in close contact with her friends from college, she is still very private, and she does not share much about her personal life to the 516 girls. She and Brian begin actually dating in the fall of 2007, and a year later, he moves in with her. But she keeps this relationship under wraps. Her friend Gretchen contacts her on Valentine's Day in 2007 and says, Well, now that you have a man, you've forgotten about me, your forever Valentine. Her friend Jennifer, also a 516 girl, starts hearing about Brian by May of that year. So she sends an email kind of digging for details. She even says, Hope to get more information out of you soon. These are her closest friends. Keep, keep that in mind. And she's not spilling any of the dirt or giving any of the details to them. So that tells us a lot about how private Jamie is and will help explain how 10 weeks can go by before anyone realizes that she is missing. So Brian is this intensely physical man and he has some very strong opinions. While Jamie kind of has this more mild temperament. To try and get a closer bond with Brian, Jamie takes up camping, which was Brian's hobby. She even goes so far as to get an SUV, which is obviously more suitable for lugging camping equipment around than the Honda Accord she was driving. So once she gets this SUV, Brian begins using her Honda to drive himself to work at the gym. Brian took her to one of his favorite spots, which was called the Magallan Rim. This is a plateau, I guess, with an abrupt drop-off. And it's located hours away from home. So Brian and Jamie also hiked the McDowell Sonoran Preserve near Scottsdale. Prior to Brian, Jamie had no interest in those kind of things. So this is a, she's a nice person. And I applaud anyone who is willing to try new things. But I think this says a lot about she is adapting herself to his lifestyle. I don't see a whole lot of that happening the other way, as you will also see as we get a little farther into this. So in the summer of 2007, Jamie and Brian are a total hot item and her friends are really happy for her. In late August, Jamie is on a business trip. She gets an email that is really very odd. The sender of this email identifies herself as Michelle, but the email itself is actually from Brian. It says, I am locked up at Durango jail. The police impounded the car I am still in the dark about why I was arrested. So he goes on to give her instructions on how to visit him in jail and then says, quote, I can't arrange bail, but you can. Please get me out of here. So it turns out that this mysterious Michelle is the fiance of one of the inmates housed where Brian is. And this is apparently the only way that Brian can contact her. So Jamie seems to take this pretty calmly. She answers the email and thanks this Michelle for sending the message and says that she will be flying back that afternoon and she will do her best to arrange bail. A potential reason that Jamie might have been so calm about all this is she had done an internet background search on Brian. And there wasn't much at all to be found on Brian Stewart of Phoenix, Arizona. Traffic violation or ticket, um, nothing earth shattering. So at this point, Jamie just thinks this is probably some kind of mistake. And because she is such a loyal person, she is going to help Brian deal with it. So let's imagine that we're at this luxurious home in Phoenix. It's almost midnight. It is August 21st, 2007. All of a sudden, this home's alarm system is going off. And the owner, who is Daniel Baker, 
goes out into his garage. There he finds himself facing this muscular white man who is breaking in to Daniel's Mercedes. The thief runs past Daniel and into the house. So the police, who have already been alerted by the alarm, are approaching the scene. The police get out, chase this man through the house and into the backyard, where this suspect easily jumps over this fence. Meanwhile, police helicopters overhead, keeping a spotlight on him. He is caught, and there's this brief struggle, but eventually he is subdued. So this man tells the police that his address is on this, it's somewhere called Baltimore Drive. And the, the police know that this place is mansions and golf courses. So while he is being cuffed, he's given this story like, oh, I was just walking home and I took a shortcut and, oh, must have taken a wrong turn. Police aren't buying it, but nearby they do find the vehicle that they believe to be the suspects. So they look up the plate number and they find out that this vehicle belongs to one Jamie Laity. That means our burglar is, of course, Jamie's bodybuilding boyfriend, Brian Stewart. A day later is when Jamie gets the email from Michelle. And on Saturday, Jamie, bless her heart, shows up and she pays $3,600 in cash to bail Brian's butt out of jail. At this point, Jamie's five sixteen girls are bombarding her with emails about Brian. Are they going to get to meet him soon? Is she bringing him to an upcoming wedding? But Jamie, because she's so private, is still avoiding answering these questions. Now, maybe even more than normal because her boyfriend is a criminal. Her Honda is an impound, and Jamie doesn't immediately have the cash to get it out just yet because she just forked out $3,600 to get him out of jail. And Brian, with no way to work now, has to quit his job at the Red Mountain Gym. This jackass lies and claims at, his, at this job that, oh, there was an incident with Jamie, but it would be in poor taste to reveal what she did. So he basically implies that Jamie did something, and now he was going to keep the car from her, and so he didn't have a way to get to work. Poor Brian. So now he isn't employed. He gets the idea that he's going to open up his own gym. And even though he claims that he's ended this relationship with Jamie, he asks her to invest money in his gym. And Jamie, being this amazing, loyal person, congratulates him, encourages him, but She's on a business trip at the time, and she says, I can't do any favors, you know, any of the favors you're asking for while I'm here. She does, however, try to find out from him when his court date is and ask him, have you gotten yourself a public defender? Brian says, I don't have a court date yet, but I have a meeting with some lawyers, and I'm sure the whole thing is going to get cleared up. So since Jamie isn't able to give Brian all the money he wants, he starts asking former clients to invest in his gym that he wants to start. So while Brian's out there playing and, you know, digging around, trying to get some money, he misses his first court date for the burglary charges. And a few weeks later, he fails to appear again. So since October, he's been a bit busy with the Arizona Minutemen, a group of potential vigilantes. So he's really busy with this group. And in the meantime, the state has issued a bench warrant for his arrest. This means Jamie is going to lose the bail money that she put up. A th another court date is set, but guess what? Brian is a no-show. And so now a bench warrant, a new one, goes out for him. So Jamie does not appear to be aware of any of this. So her life is just kind of going on like normal, but her friends are pestering her. They want to see a picture of Brian. Well, Jamie doesn't have a good one because she, according to her, Brian doesn't like to have his picture taken. 
She does have a few photos that she took in like a dimly lit bar. And she does have this weird photo from a wedding they went to. She tells her friends that she catches the bouquet at this wedding. But for some reason, Brian isn't at all happy about it. And if you look at him in the photo, he is looking down and away from the person taking the picture. So a few weeks go by and Brian is pulled over in Jamie's silver Honda. Officer Rainey of the Phoenix Police Department pulls Brian up in the database and finds out, of course, that there is a bench warrant for him. So Brian is arrested, and in Rainey's report of the incident, he says that Brian gives him the wrong name and social security number. Once Brian is caught, he just tells the court he's a victim of undelivered mail. What's actually true is that the Baltimore address he had given was fake. So he tells the court that for the last year and a half, He's been living at 330 North Eucalyptus Place, which is Jamie's house. So if all this mail was going to this other address, obviously he wouldn't have gotten it. Anyways, Jamie comes through, and this time she pays his bail of $5,000. Brian, at this point, he is charged with a second-degree burglary, forgery, resisting arrest, physical force, and a second-degree criminal trespass. In May, he takes a play deal. Play deal? maybe play date. He is very immature. But anyways, he doesn't take a play date. He takes a plea deal and he pleads guilty to first degree trespass, which is a felony. So he gets two years probation and no jail time. Brian must be the most excellent storyteller because Jamie keeps paying his bail. I don't understand what is so great about him. Um, In her eyes, he must be something because I would not keep forking out the money, but it doesn't take very long before Brian is added again. Probation officers show up at Jamie's house, and when Jamie answers the door, they tell her they want to talk to Brian. She goes into the house, but she comes back and says, Brian doesn't want to talk to them. So by August of 2008, things seem to be settling down. Brian gets the terms of his probation, and Jamie gets her $5,000 back. She uses that money to buy tickets for the two of them, along with plane tickets, to go to a University of Michigan football game in October. But our friend Brian fails to appear in court that month and he gets another bench warrant. So in October, Jamie pays bail again. And the same day she bails him out, they take their flight to the football game. The Wolverines lost that game, by the way. But Brian got something that he really placed a lot of value on. He got photos of himself at that game. So two days after they get back to Arizona, the probation department is looking for Brian. He's arrested at Jamie's house for the outstanding warrant and put in 4th Avenue jail. So for the next six months, it becomes a revolving door of Brian getting arrested, Jamie paying bail. Brian gets arrested, Jamie pays bail. For whatever reason, Brian cannot seem to get his stupid butt to a court date. By April of 2009, the stress of this ongoing tumultuous relationship is really beginning to show. Jamie tells her friend Kathy that they are fighting over stupid little things that end up in huge fights. She says, well, they work it out. But she also told Kathy that she wanted to talk to her about someone new that she'd met. This mysterious someone new had given her doubts about her relationship with Brian. By midsummer of 2009, she's still with Brian, and now Brian needs some dental work. So Jamie makes the appointment. She pays the bill. On the next day, she finds a female gym client of Brian's. She seeks her out. 
And it kind of appears that Jamie is of the opinion that this woman isn't just a client, but probably has a relationship with Brian. She kind of sends this clever little letter and asks this other woman for help. Jamie says, I know that you probably don't know the situation between Brian and me and what has happened over the years. I'm just looking to get someone to tell the truth about what happened on Saturday and Brian's cover-up and lies. I don't think anything comes of that, but, you know, so we get this mindset. Jamie's thinking something's going on here. I think she knows Brian has some secrets and she just doesn't know who to turn to. Sadly, all of these relationship issues kind of become second fiddle because that is the year that of the financial crisis. The AIG collapses, Lehman Brothers, Fannie Mae, all of this goes on, and she ends up getting laid off from her job at Cayenne Medical. So now she has to get thrifty with her money, and she has to find a new job. So she ends up taking on two temporary part-time jobs, and she tells a friend, Sheila, in October that it has been really hard since she got laid off. She goes on to say that Brian doesn't seem to get it, that they can't live the same lifestyle. She says, quote, it has been really hard since I was laid off. I was the breadwinner and Brian was the trophy wife. So Jamie's cutbacks mean that she can't attend her friend Kathy's wedding in a city on the Caspian Sea. Her friend wanted to pay for Jamie, but Jamie is like, I am not letting the bride pay for me to get there. Even though she's making all these cutbacks, Jamie is still such a generous person that during the Christmas season, she still made all of her usual charitable contributions. She even upped the amount of volunteer work and began doing home visits with the elderly through the Sun Valley Hospice. So even though things are going sour between her and Brian, Jamie still begins continues to withdraw from her friends. In January of 2010, she writes Kathy, the one that just recently got married, and said, I have bad days and good days. Good days are when I don't break down and cry. She goes on to say that, I've been trying to distance myself from everyone. I just can't stand people feeling sorry for me anymore. In February, Jamie gets a job offer from Care Fusion. And so things might be looking up. Not her dream job, but she takes it. The company gives her a laptop and a cell phone along with an American Express card. While this is happening, Brian has asked the Arizona Power Company for new service to be hooked up at an apartment in Scottsdale. On March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, 2010. Jamie uses that company-provided credit card to go buy some office supplies. She goes home, she pays a bill online, and talks to the roofer when he called. At 7.34 p.m., an email shows up about a dental sales job in Portland that comes with a pretty high salary. Electronic records show that that email is clicked on and it is moved to a save folder. The email after it, at 7.58 p.m., is a forwarded email from Brian that has grocery coupons. That email isn't opened. And the next day, Jamie is supposed to start work at CareFusion, but she never shows. So now in the weeks following this, our friend Brian is going to start setting up a little narrative here. He starts responding to various emails that are coming in from the Michigan Alumni Association, and his responses are things like, oh, I'll be there, but don't hold your breath on Jamie. He said he would attend an Easter celebration, but he didn't know about Jamie, didn't think she was going to attend. Eventually, Brian tells Marlene and Penny, who are the board members of this alumni association, that Jamie took a job in Denver. Well, Penny thinks it's weird that she hasn't heard from her because Denver isn't Mars and you can still send emails, you can still make phone calls. 
Brian acts like he thinks it's weird too. But a month has gone by. Penny has not talked to Jamie. And even if Jamie had moved to Denver, she just cannot believe that Jamie would just stop talking to them. The alumni have always gotten help from Jamie with the scholarships that they would set up. Jamie would always donate her frequent flyer miles to help these students where a lot of them were international flights. And they've always counted on her for this. Now she's just gone silent. They also need her vote on giving out these scholarships because she's a part of the board. So now they're getting irritated, Penny and Marlena. So Marlena sends an email and says, can you please extend Penny the courtesy of a response? I know you've moved and apparently don't want anything to do with Arizona anymore. Penny follows Marlena's email up with a note trying to get through to Jamie, padding it with personal chit-chat and stuff. Still no response. Penny makes a final appeal to Jamie. Nothing. The people of Carefusion have at this point given up on Jamie. They have even sent her a certified letter asking that she return the valuable items they had provided. One of their supervisors even goes to Jamie's house. No one answers. But when the supervisor approaches a neighbor, this man tells the supervisor, oh, I don't really know them, but there was often a man and a woman at the house. I haven't seen the woman in weeks. In May of 2010, Mr. Bryan gets himself pulled over. And guess what he's driving? He is driving a gold SUV. And when the police officer asks him why it's not registered to him, he claims he's buying it from Jamie, who is the owner. So the people at the Gold's Gym that he works at see him driving Jamie's SUV, which they think is weird, because he has been telling everybody that he left Jamie because Jamie is psycho. So what's his explanation? Why is this psycho letting him drive her SUV? Well, he claims she couldn't drive both cars to Colorado, so she left one here for him. Because there's no way to get an extra vehicle sent somewhere, is there? Of course she would leave it. Anyways, summer is approaching. Penny is no longer irritated. Penny, the, the board member from the Alumni Association, she is frightened. She and Marlena go to put some pressure on Brian to get him to report Jamie missing because he hasn't done that. He claims that the Chandler Police Department won't do anything because Brian isn't a relative. So Penny and Marlena tell him, get her father to do it. Well, Brian has nothing good to say about Mr. Lady and says he doesn't even know how to reach him. So Penny gets Jimmy's number off the internet and gives it to Brian and demands that he call Jamie's father. Later that same afternoon, Brian tells Penny and Marlena that, okay, I talked to Mr. Laity and I told him what was going on and he told me to back off. Well, Penny is not buying it. So she calls Jamie's father and she finds out that Brian is lying. That the minute Jamie's father had learned she was missing, he had reported it. Patrol officer Daniel Shellam is sent to Jamie's house. This is about 6.30 p.m. He does a preliminary check and he finds out from a neighbor that the woman has disappeared, but that the man that lives there still shows up. So this officer breaks in and he finds a woman's purse on the table a pile of unopened mail, prescription eyeglasses, and a packet of birth control pills with only four missing. Her silver Honda is in the garage. So where is the gold escape? Detective Nathan Moffat takes the lead on this case, and he has DMV photos of Jamie and Brian. So they run the license plate of the gold escape through the license plate recognition database. 
or LPR. And an LPR camera near Rain Tree Road in Scottsdale picks up the escape. 12.30 a.m., Detective Jesus Diana, in an unmarked car, tries to enter an apartment complex, but this has a lift gate, and he can't get in, so he has to make a U-turn. As he's trying to steer away, a car pulls in after him. And Deanda says to himself, ooh, hey, I can just follow that car in. So instead of a U-turn, he makes a complete circle and gets behind the car. And he finds himself staring at the license plate of the very vehicle he's looking for. The driver leans out, enters an access code to get through the gate, and Deanda sees that it is none other than Brian Stewart. So he follows Brian, and while he does this, he radios in that, I found the escape and I found Brian. So while Deanda has been out looking, the Chandler Police Department discovered that there is an outstanding traffic warrant for Brian. Deanda uses the emergency lights and sirens and he pulls Brian over inside of the apartment complex. Brian Stewart gets out of the SUV and approaches. So Deanda asks Brian if he knows why he's there. Brian says no. Deanda tells him, I am here because of your missing girlfriend. Brian immediately says, my ex-girlfriend. So Deanda asks him, can you come to the Chandler PD to talk about Jamie's disappearance? Brian says he doesn't want to do it tonight. He also asks if he can go into his apartment to use the bathroom. Deanda will later write in his report that Brian was nervous and wanted or needed to get into that apartment. He also notes that Brian was just walking around like he was trying to figure out what am I going to do next. So needless to say, he was not allowed to go into the apartment. Instead, they arrested him on the outstanding warrant and they take him back to the Chandler PD. Now this is interesting. Several officers wrote in their notes that Brian no longer asked to use the restroom, even though they offered to let him several times. So Detective Moffat is now talking to Brian Stewart. His police intuition is telling him that Brian is lying. So Moffat decides to divide his attention because it takes a lot of focus to keep lying. So he has Brian thumbing through some papers. And while he's doing that, Moffat asks him, oh, when he went to high school. And the years that Brian gives do not match up to the birth date on his ID. So when Moffat points this out, Brian blurts out, oh, I was held back. Well, not to be outdone, Detective Moffat says, 24-year-olds are not allowed to go to high school. Detective Moffat will later say that, quote, until we pulled him over, I had no reason to believe he wasn't Brian Stewart. Now I knew his story was falling apart. I didn't know who I was talking to. So Brian goes on to tell Detective Moffat that he and Jamie broke up on March 17th. He says that on the evening of the 17th, he told Jamie he wanted to break up, but she surprised him by saying, I want to move to Colorado and I want you to come with me. Brian says, I told her no, I'm not leaving Arizona and I am not going to marry you. So they argue about this, but things eventually settle down and they go to bed. He says he gets up 3.15 a.m. on the 18th and she is in bed sleeping. He gives her a kiss, tells her he loves her, and he leaves for work. When he came home at noon, the luggage was gone and so was Jamie. We will later find out that on the same day, he sent an email to her friend Marlena and said that Jamie dumped him and moved to Colorado. So he's telling the cops he dumped her. He's telling her friend that she dumped him. But both of them, he claims to both the cops and Marlena that she did go to Colorado. So in an interview on that 48 Hours episode, Marlena says that she was thinking good for her, that she and her friends just wanted Jamie to be happy. 
and that if moving to Colorado was what she needed to do, good for her. And they were trying to give her some space. So later, when 10 weeks, almost three months have gone by and no one's heard from her, that giving her some space kind of feels like maybe that wasn't such a good idea. So back in the interview room, Detective Moffat is laying a nice little trap and he keeps trying to get Brian to repeat that neither he nor Jamie had gotten up and left that night. Brian claims neither of them had, and he keeps saying it. Now Detective Moffat lets him have it. If no one left, then how did an LPR camera catch the gold escape at 11.45 p.m. on the 17th? So I think Brian is a bit surprised. But it doesn't take him long before he says, well, Jamie must have gone out after I fell asleep. So Detective Moffat tells him that the escape was tagged at a rain tree address, the apartment complex, that they had just picked Brian up at. Brian is now getting a bit more uncomfortable, and he says, well, I have no idea why Jamie would be there. So Detective Moffat drops the LPR photo onto the table so he can end this game that Brian is trying to play. And there is no denying that in the photo clearly shows Brian is the one in the car. Now Brian gets to go to jail. So the police are now at the Raintree apartment, and in it they find a U of M diploma for Brian Stewart for a BS in education physiology. They find a birth certificate for Brian Stewart and a state of Michigan ID for Brian Stewart. And as they're digging around, they find this envelope, and it is addressed to Rick Valentini. In this envelope are divorce papers for Rick Valentini. Why would Brian Stewart have some guy's divorce papers? The police are seeing this and then they're wondering, well, is Brian really Rick? Because they know the birth dates aren't matching and he's gotten caught with his giving an age that is actually seven years more than what the Brian Stewart ID says. So they find this storage unit at the apartment complex that belongs to Brian. They cut the lock off and in it they find a dirt-covered shovel, a sawed-off shotgun, and a lot of plastic sheeting. Besides the shotgun, there is also a 25 caliber handgun. So now back in the apartment, they find other firearms and hatchets and swords. Now it makes a little bit of sense why he wanted to go back into the apartment to supposedly use the bathroom. Some other things that they found in that storage unit are a state of Michigan seal to make your own state of Michigan embossed seals and a birth certificate with the name Ricky Wayne Schmidt. They find paperwork with several different social security numbers. And the coup de grace, they find a book entitled The Modern Identity Changer. So crime scene investigators search the escape and they find a red stain on the center console that tests positive for blood. Within days of being tossed in jail, other inmates are saying that Brian is afraid he's going to be charged with murdering his girlfriend. Allegedly, he told some cellmates that the cops would never find her body and also that the cops already have the murder weapon, which was supposedly the shotgun that they had found in the storage unit. So the police have this jailhouse snitch that tells Brian that he has a friend on the outside who could do errands for Brian. This friend's name was RJ. Brilliant Brian takes the bait and he arranges for RJ to go to the gym and pick some stuff up. Whenever Brian needs RJ for various tasks, a series of detectives take on the undercover role. Detective Moffat even added $200 to Stewart's jail account, so Brian will think the money came from RJ. So there's this woman that gets hired to clean out the abandoned apartment on Raintree. Her name is Mary. And while she is working in the kitchen, she finds a box of oatmeal that feels way too heavy to be oatmeal. 
she takes off the lid and she finds a handgun inside of it. Now just stow that little bit of oatmeal information in the back of your head for now. So Brian Stewart claims that his parents died in a crash in 2001. But Detective Moffat has received information from private investigator Burt Files, who had run a credit report on Brian. What Burt Files had found was that there was a Rick Valentini, supposedly Brian's roommate, on his credit report, which might not be incredibly weird, except that Rick Valentini's divorce papers are in Brian's house. So now Detective Moffat is assuming that Brian is either Rick Valentini or this Ricky Wayne. It's not too hard after that for Brian to find Debbie Valentini, who is alive and well in California. She says her son, Ricky Wayne Schmidt, was born in 1969. When she remarried, her kids took their stepfather's name of Valentini, and her son, whom she says she hasn't heard from in years, had been Ricky Valentini from kindergarten on. She has also never heard the name Brian Stewart. So let's talk about Ricky. Ricky's childhood was apparently not easy on the family. Debbie had Ricky when she was just 18. Ricky's brother told Detective Moffat later that the family had a hard time with Ricky, and Ricky's sister told police she was actually afraid of Ricky. Debbie said that Ricky had such severe behavioral problems that a counselor had told her to keep the child in the garage where he couldn't bother anyone. Really? Who puts a kid in the garage? And why would a counselor say that? Why would you not find some way to give this child therapy to try to help him, not lock him in a garage? But anyways, he apparently gets to come inside to eat. Very nice of them. Ricky turns 16 and Debbie lets him out of the garage and gives him over to foster care. Now, I don't know the whole family dynamic here, and I certainly think we are all responsible for our actions, but this... The way that this young man was treated is no wonder that something is not right in his head. And if he had emotional or mental issues, they were never dealt with. And well, except to stick him in a garage and allow him out to eat, which is just horrendous in my mind. I just want to say that I don't think that was the proper therapy for Brian Rick Ricky. As a young man, Ricky ends up with his Aunt Donna. This aunt will tell Detective Moffat at one point, Ricky had parked a U-Haul truck at her house for about a week, and Donna kind of thinks that that truck was stolen. And also, without her knowledge, Ricky had gone to Donna's elderly aunt and asked her for money. Her name was Rose, and she was 81 years old. She gave Ricky a $2,000 check, but asked him to promise not to cash it because she needed to transfer the funds. He promises, but he later comes back to Rose and says, there's something wrong with the check. Can you write me another one? And she does. So Donna, Ricky's aunt, and Rose's niece, is a little bit surprised when the elderly Rose calls her from jail. Rose has been arrested for check fraud. That's when Donna finds out that Ricky, despite his promise, had not only cashed the first check, but the second. He gets $4,000, and the elderly Rose gets jail. So Donna promptly kicks Ricky's ass out. Ricky ends up getting married to a woman named Wendy and they have a baby together. You know, the problem is that Ricky is kind of good looking and he doesn't seem to have a lot of trouble getting women. His aunt Donna recalls that she was at Ricky and Wendy's apartment while Wendy was out and Donna heard a thud and the baby started screaming. 
This was after Ricky had been scolding the baby. So Donna runs in there and Ricky claims, oh, the baby fell while in her crib. But Donna is pretty sure that Ricky threw the baby or dropped the baby into the crib. Donna doesn't leave because she's afraid that he might do something else. So she stays until Wendy comes back. She will also later say that she believes Ricky was abused as a child. And like we just discussed, I believe if you're being imprisoned in the garage, that would be abuse. Whether there was other abuse or not, I couldn't find any info on that. But Donna believes that he invented the persona of Brian so he could be someone else to escape that past. Ricky joins the army and he ends up in Fort Lewis, Washington. But he doesn't much care for the army or for his young family. So he goes AWOL. When the military police catch up to him in Florida and ends up stabbing the two MPs, one in the hand and one in the leg. For that little stunt, he gets to spend two years in army jail. So at 23, he gets a dishonorable discharge and he is being sued for divorce and child support. Ricky isn't alone for long though. In the mid-90s, he marries Catherine and she gives birth to his second daughter. This marriage is no better than the first. The divorce documents that the detectives had found in the Raintree apartment were for a third woman, Cynthia, that he'd married in 2000. This was a beautiful brunette and a successful vice president of a bank. Cynthia had sent the divorce papers to Florida, even though this was years after he left his Valentini identity behind. So there's a little bit of a pattern with bad relationships, but also with this last one, this woman was very successful, made money. Jamie was very successful and made money. So Brian is, he is the trophy wife that Jamie kind of referred to him as. And in some of the interviews that I watched with him, he calls himself that and doesn't have a problem with it. So anyways, Detective Moffat is putting together all of the little puzzle pieces of Brian Rick Ricky's life story. And he finds out there is no University of Michigan education and that there is no record of a Brian Stewart, a Rick Valentini, or even Ricky Wayne Schmidt. The diploma on the wall is a forgery. They trace it back to a little print shop and the lady that had made it was really upset that it was used as authentic because she was told it was supposed to be like a gag gift for someone. So let's go back to Brian who is in jail. Brian wants to meet RJ, the person on the outside that he thinks is, you know, able to do little errands for him who is actually undercover policeman. So this undercover police officer at this time, we're going to call him Detective Smith. He shows up and he introduces himself to Brian as RJ. Brian wants RJ to sell some of his belongings. He refers to his cereal multiple times. And each time he says it, he follows up by saying, that's a hint. When RJ indicates, I don't understand what you mean, Brian keeps repeating it. This happens a few times. Brian does not know that the gun in the oatmeal box has already been found and is in police custody. So over the next year, they use snitches and various officers to take on the role of RJ outside of the prison to run errands. And while they're doing this, they're kind of deep diving into the records that have been left behind by Jamie and Brian. In the end, they come to the conclusion that Jamie Laity was murdered sometime between 7.34 p.m. and 11.45 p.m. on March 17th. And the window of time is because 7.34 p.m. and 7.58 p.m., which was when Jamie had last saved an email and when Brian had forwarded her coupons, which was really shady, by the way. He had never sent her coupons before, and these coupons he sent her, Jamie already got those coupons in the mail directly from the store. 
So it's looking pretty blatantly like an attempt to establish some kind of electronic alibi. The timeline revealed that Jamie's typical behavior ended and Brian's impulsive behavior took over. First comes the LPR photo at 11.45 p.m. of Brian entering the Raintree complex in Jamie's escape. Then at 2 a.m. on the 18th, Jamie's personal credit card is used from the Raintree complex to buy camping goods online. The day after she disappeared, her CareFusion credit card was used in an ATM for cash. During that week, several more attempts were made to get cash from that card. Those were unsuccessful. So on March 21st, our friend Brian uses one of Jamie's personal cards to sign up for online dating sites. He joins at least seven over the next few days. For profile pictures on these dating sites that he is using his missing girlfriend's card for, the picture is the one Jamie had taken of him on the trip to Ann Arbor the day after she had bailed him out of jail. Several other purchases were made online using Jamie's cards over the next few weeks. These things were all sent to Jamie's house on Eucalyptus, but they were all addressed to Brian. On March 18th, store footage showed Brian shopping without Jamie at Target, Walmart, and Costco, and he was using Jamie's credit cards on that shopping trip. That is the day after anyone saw or spoke to her. So it seems before Jamie disappeared, Brian was trying to set up the narrative that it was intentional on her part. He'd say stuff to people like, I don't know what is happening with Jamie, but I know she wants out of Arizona really bad. He says this to multiple people. But what police find when they look into it is everything looks like she was trying to get job referrals in Arizona because she wanted to stay near her friends. They also find that late on the afternoon that they suspect might have been her last day alive, she sent a message to a friend, David Beauchamp, who was a lawyer, and she wanted to make plans to meet up. David claims that Jamie had told him she was afraid of Brian, and David had urged her to call police. David says that Jamie said to him, quote, I don't think they could protect me from him. So from jailhouse snitches, the police find out the potential motive for Jamie's killing could have been that she was talking to other men. Do you remember she mentioned to a girlfriend that she had met someone? Also, Brian allegedly said that a man could hit a woman under certain circumstances. He supposedly pointed at a picture of Jamie in a newspaper. This is happening in jail and says she learned that. He also said, according to these snitches, that he blasted her with the shotgun. So as the investigation is going on, a small white envelope is found containing cut-up IDs and credit cards. When they are reassembled, they turn out to be Jamie's driver's license, her U of M student ID, and her credit cards. So during that 48 Hours episode, Erin Moriarty is interviewing Brian, and she asks him, why would you cut those up? Now I'm going to tell you, I paused it. I paused the video I was watching, and I said out loud to myself, he is going to give some bullshit explanation like she did it. Then I hit play, and that is exactly what he says. Unfortunately for Brian Rickricky, the only DNA on that envelope that those little pieces were sealed in was his. So Brian goes on trial in June of 2011 for second-degree murder and fraud charges. During the trial, the prosecution's first witness is a woman named Andrea, who is married to a pitcher for the Seattle Mariners. They go to Scottsdale for the off-season, and while there, Andrea works out at Gold's Gym, where Brian is her personal trainer. She testifies that he would complain about Jamie constantly. She said he would say things like whiny, 
bitch, sugar mama. She even stands up and demonstrates how he would squeeze his stomach together and say, JB the good. Turns out that Brian was using a social security number quite frequently of a United States Marine, Quintez Braxton, who was actually pretty good natured about it. He had been serving his country overseas and he says, I hadn't exactly been keeping an eye on my credit rating. It also comes out that the attorney that I had spoke about earlier was working, Beauchamp, was working with Jamie to get a, the contract she wanted at the new job that she was due to start on the 18th. He says that when they got together, he saw bruises on her. This was two days before she disappeared. He also said she exhibited the characteristics of a battered woman and that she broke down. So on day seven of this trial, a jailhouse snitch takes the stand and says that Brian was very agitated and saying the police know I killed her and that Brian needed to get it off his chest. For clarity's sake, this snitch was at the time was serving a two-year sentence for fraud. For his cooperation, it was reduced to one, so he did benefit from this. But at this trial, fortunately for us, Brian takes the stand. Big mistake for him. Jamie's mother will say when she's in an interview that she hoped he was going to take the stand. She wanted him up there so people would be able to see right through him. So on the stand, Brian claims that he had permission to use her cards. He even says it was pretty much, you know, from the first date, she insisted I use her cards. He claims that even after she vanished into her new secret identity, that she would still go to the house that they shared and to his condo in Phoenix. When he was asked, well, how do you know this? And he says, because things were moved. And he claims that they were still communicating via emails and phone calls. Previously told police, when he says it again during the interview portion of the 48-hour episode, that he showed Jamie how to create a new identity because she wanted to escape her family. He claims that she got $100,000 from her father and that she's still out there. Now, does this make any sense at all to any of us about her wanting to run away and she wants to run away because she can't stand her family? She's going to get a thousand, I'm sorry, $100,000 from her father who she supposedly hates. Brian claims she's terrified of her family. So this makes no sense whatsoever. So the day before Thanksgiving, a year and a half after Jamie disappeared, the prosecution and the defense rest. The jury foreman says that at the time, he was worried going in that it might be difficult for the 12 of them to make a decision on murder without a body. But after just four hours of deliberation, the jury came back with guilty verdicts. Jamie's parents both break down when they hear the first guilty verdict on the second degree murder charge. So apparently Brian's little facade of hopefulness, and I can just picture the stupid harmless look on his face right now as I'm saying this, kind of melts away and he starts shaking his head muttering. So the jurors will say later that it only took the first 10 minutes of Brian's testimony in the stand before any doubt they had was erased. And when they were asked if they believed him to be dangerous, they all said yes. So I'm going to point out the obvious. It wasn't Brian that was convicted. It was Rick Valentini because there is no Brian. So Brian is sentenced to 54 years. And in, in the interview on 48 Hours, Brian claims, if I had a computer, I could find Jamie. So Aaron Moriarty hands him the iPad she has in her hands. Of course, then he's mumbling and bumbling and says, oh, well, I need my own computer to do it because we use this special email site, right? Aaron points out how crazy this sounds and asks, why, would, why wouldn't your attorneys have done something with, the, with this information if it was true? Brian claims that he gave them the info, but he never th heard anything back. 
So I'm thinking if it was me on trial and I was truly innocent, I'd have not taken no for an answer. But maybe since I don't have three identities, I don't get it. But Aaron goes on to ask him why, if Jamie is alive and out there, would she let you stand trial for her murder? And his response is, quote, I don't think either of us thought it would get this far. So that was not much of an answer. But because he had been so helpful as to help create her a new identity and had really wanted to marry her and go to Colorado with her, she certainly wouldn't let him go to prison for murder, would she? So here's a little admission. When I first started trying to record this episode, I could only think to myself how detestable, disgusting, and horrible this Brian is. And I was so worked up that I said, Brian is disgustable. I deleted it, but now that I think about it, and after retelling this entire account to you, I've decided he is indeed disgustable. And yes, I know it's not a real word, so don't send me an email telling me it's not. So I'm going to end on this because this really tore me up. Jamie's mother on the 48-hour episode says that she has kept the receiving blanket from when she brought Jamie home from the hospital when she was born and that she carries it with her all the time now. She says she intends to use it to carry Jamie home if they find her. Jamie's body has yet to be found. At this point, all we can do is hope that Brian Rick Ricky someday tells us where she is. If you'd like to send me an email, you can do so at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. You could check out my Facebook page at crimebiscuit colon a true crime podcast. I'm brand new at it, so... Be patient with me. Also, if you would subscribe or rate and review, I would appreciate it. And here's your final crumb. If you are such a disgustable human being that you have to create three identities and use women for their money and what they can do for you, do us a favor. Dig yourself a hole and climb in. Thanks for joining me. Bye.